Good evening, and welcome to Let's Just Talk. I'm your host, Hami. Today, we will be addressing a topic that has sent shockwaves through our global communities. On February 24th, Russia began a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. As we speak, Russia is still attempting to occupy Ukraine against heavy resistance from both Ukrainians and the majority of the world. Millions have been displaced, left without homes, food, or water, and civilians are deliberately being killed as they try to escape the country. To help us understand this crisis, we are joined by Dr. Emily Chanel Justice. She is the director of the Temerty Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute over at Harvard University. She is a social cultural anthropologist who has been doing research in Ukraine since 2012. Dr. Chanel Justice, welcome on our show. And we are happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. And to begin, we're going to give you five to seven minutes to offer your perspective mm -hmm. or point of view on everything that is going on. Mm -hmm. And then we have a series of questions for you that we'll delve into later on in the programming. Great. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I mean, I know this is a really important topic. Um, a lot of people, I think, are watching the news and they're seeing images from Ukraine that are just heartbreaking and devastating and maybe they they want to know a little bit more um, and and maybe they think maybe it's difficult to talk about because they don't know very much from from um, from their perspective but um, I think it's it's great we've seen a lot of support like you mentioned um, but obviously this conflict goes back a really long time um, Ukraine and Russia have a history that's connected mm -hmm. uh, that goes back really thousands and thousands of years. And there's many different ways that people have studied Ukraine. Like you mentioned, I'm a sociocultural anthropologist. So that means that I have worked mostly on a kind of people level. Um, my background expertise is in political movements, social activism. I've studied higher education movements, feminist movements. Um, and I was really involved in the 2013 and 2014 Euromaidan protests, which right. which is something we can talk about more. And these were these pro-democratic, um, pro-Europe protests that really put Ukraine on a certain path. And and actually, these protests are an important backdrop for what's happening now, mm -hmm. um, because Ukraine became independent in 1991, mm -hmm. um, and it was orienting itself toward democracy in a very um, mixed way, we can say. there's a, a It's very well known for having problems with corruption. Um, there's a lot of people who are in power in Ukraine who got power based on wealth. So we wouldn't call Ukraine an oligarchy, but there's a lot of oligarchs. So it's lots of people who have power, have money, and run the country. Um, and over the past eight years since these protests that ended in 2014, um, Ukraine has really started to move away from that kind of corruption to really try to become a better democracy mm -hmm. um, and to really try to meet European standards. That, of course, I think took a very particular turn in 2019. The right. president who was elected then, Volodymyr Zelensky, was mm -hmm. a TV comedian. Mm -hmm. In an example of life imitating <laughs> art, he uh, had this TV show called Servant of the People. Right. The plot of the show was that he was an ordinary history teacher. Mm -hmm. and he made this video uh, complaining about corruption. It went viral and he got elected to the presidency. That right. is, that's the plot of the show. Right. That's what really happened. He actually won he that election. He manifested it. He manifested it. 75, almost 75% of Ukrainians voted for him, wow. um, which was unprecedented. And I really think that this moment is important because, you know, 
Ukraine, like I said, has been independent since 1991. So mm-hmm. has Russia. Vladimir Putin has been the president of Russia since 2000. Mm-hmm. And for really the past, most of that time period, Russia and Ukraine have existed side by side. Um, Ukraine has always had a strong economic relationship with Russia mm-hmm. um, and a political, frankly, relationship. Lots of Ukrainians live in Russia, have family in Russia, speak Russian, are right. Russian. Um, so they were always very connected. And it's only now that we're seeing this massive kind of aggression come right. out. Um, yes, this is complicated, but it's also not complicated. There is one bad guy in this scenario. Vladimir Putin is is the bad guy. Right. And so I think it's important for us to ask about some of the complaints complexities of what's going on at the same time that we recognize, you know, that Ukraine was a country, it was a sovereign nation state. It got invaded by another country, Mm -hmm. by a president who thinks it shouldn't exist. That's the bottom line. Okay. So thank you for summing that up for us. For a lot of people who haven't studied Ukrainian and Russian history or are not experts in that area, it feels like overnight Putin just woke up and said, I'm going to invade Ukraine and it's going to be part of Russia or something like that. It feels very Mm -hmm. confusing. It feels like a new thing, a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But you've spoken about the history between the two nations. And so could you give us sort of like an elementary explanation Mm -hmm. of how we got to where we are today? Yeah, I I think um, it's... It does sort of seem like that because there were very, very few experts, even people who have studied this region for years, who really thought that this was what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's for a number of reasons. So I I won't go back thousands of years because that's too many years. Um, But I will go back to 2013 and 2014. So like I said, these were these pro-European protests. Mm -hmm. Um, This was the the president of Ukraine at that time was very pro-Russian. he was ousted by these protests and Ukraine started kind of rebuilding its democracy. However, in 2014, Russia occupied and illegally annexed Crimea, which is this peninsula on the south end of Ukraine that was an autonomous republic within Ukraine. Right. Populated by an indigenous population, indigenous Muslim population of Crimean Tatars, mm-hmm. um, who were very pro-Ukrainian politically. Um, and, and Russia basically took it over. Mm-hmm. They sent a bunch of special ops forces in and said, this is part of Russia now. And the rest of the world kind of said, okay. And then what happened after that was in two of the Eastern regions of Ukraine, what we usually call Donbass, which Mm. is the Donetsk basin. That's a very um, kind of uh, industrial coal mining kind of region. Right. Historically very connected with Russia. separatists in those regions declared that they also wanted to be part of Russia. And that's right. what started the first war. And okay. Russia supported those those separatists, supplied them with troops, supplied them with soldiers, but never actually recognized or annexed those territories. So right. Ukraine has been at war for eight years. Okay. It was a not a cold war. It was hot. Soldiers were still dying every week. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had kind of become stable if you can say it like that when you have a war going on um so that's why no one really predicted that this was what would happen because you know ukraine couldn't join nato ukraine couldn't join the eu while at war so why would russia want to change that because it still had so much control over ukraine by having an ongoing war in those territories okay so by invading russia completely threw off the balance that they had created in ukraine um 
So that's partly why it was such a surprise. So one of the other key things that happened recently was that Vladimir Putin's language toward Ukraine started shifting, where previously he had said Ukraine's a sovereign country, it's a nation, you know, whatever, they can be independent. Last summer, he wrote this essay mm. about how Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. Right. And at the time, most people studying the region sort of said, like, this is goofy and weird. And right. Vlad, um, the Ukrainian president Zelensky's response was, I wish I had time to write a 5,000 word essay about my country's history. Yeah. So everybody didn't really take it seriously. Now we see that that was kind of a declaration of war. Mm. You know, he was saying then that he doesn't believe Ukraine should exist. Um, now, you know, that's what he has acted on. So he, he seems to have, Vladimir Putin seems to have been building to this. The rest of the world thought, it doesn't make sense for him to invade. It started a world war. That's ridiculous. And, you know, we, a lot of us got it wrong, myself included. So you mentioned three things, three words here that should like make anybody shiver. World war. Let's speak to that in a bit about what is the potential of a world war happening. Um, you also mentioned that um, Putin sees Ukrainians as Russians or that Ukraine should be part of Russia. Mm -hmm. But the man has also been bombing civilians. Yes. What is the logic behind that? It's like, I'm just going to bomb them and then later on they're going to be Russians. Um, and then lastly, is there a geopolitical advantage for Ukraine to be a part of Russia? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll start with the middle question because I think that's really important to address. Um, what we know about Vladimir Putin is that in the past couple of years with the COVID-19 pandemic, he's become increasingly isolated. Mm -hmm. So he was always, you know, very autocratic. Russia has not been a democracy for a long time. Um, but over the past few years, his circle of his of advisors has gotten a lot smaller. Right. So one of the big things that seems to hap have happened is that he's miscalculated Ukrainian public opinion. Right. Um, so he was claiming that all these Russian speakers in Ukraine were uh, being threatened by the Ukrainian government, that they're that the Ukrainian government is Nazis and we're committing genocide against Russian speakers. All of that's totally false. Um, most Ukrainians and including Russian speaking Ukrainians, which mm. is everybody, everybody, pretty much everyone in Ukraine is bilingual, Ukrainian right. and Russian. Russian speakers actually want to be part of Ukraine. Mm. And so when Vladimir Putin tried to invade two weeks ago, he really thought that the troops were going to come in and Ukrainians were going to welcome him with open arms right. and say, super, we, this was, you know, Ukraine is a, an essential part of the, the new Russian empire. And that is not what has happened. Right. Um, he seems to have thought that the Ukrainians wanted to be part of Russia and his response to them not wanting to be part of Russia is to, is to bomb civilians. I mean, there is obviously no, no real explanation for that other than that he's lashing out in this aggressive way. Right. Um, so, I mean, I guess he thinks that, that, he'll he'll achieve submission of ukraine with this aggressive threat i don't think that's going to happen okay um so that's it there isn't really a good you know measure for that no and 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 it doesn't you know many things that he has done don't really make sense in actual logic right putin right. kind of has his own logic his own rationality that he's created for himself um i mean the question that you asked about you know how whether or not it would be beneficial for Ukraine to be part of Russia, I mean, no, only in as much as self-determination is a thing and Ukrainians don't want to be part of Russia. They want to have an independent country. Um, there's no way 
to subdue Ukrainians into being part of Russia other than by force. Right. So, I mean, I think it would actually be beneficial for Ukraine in the long term to find a balance between Europe and Russia. I mean, it is a small country in between bigger powers. Right. So economically, it would be very difficult for Ukraine to completely cut off from Russia. Politically, you know, there's a lot of influence. There's a lot of cultural exchange. I mean, there are some very famous writers in Ukraine who still write in Russian because that's their first language. So it would have been better to just try to find a balance in the world. And it's very difficult for me to understand why Vladimir Putin didn't think that, mm. you know, didn't, didn't understand that Ukraine would kind of be obligated to have a relationship with Russia mm-hmm. in any, you know, shape or form. In any, really, truly, in, in any version of the world. Um, but now, you know, he's done more to make Ukrainians hate Russia and hate Russians mm-hmm. than he ever has done before. And now people are really, really mad. Right. Um, and don't you know they don't see themselves as as like russians previously a lot of ukrainians felt themselves you know putin kind of calls calls ukrainians like the same as russians and i wouldn't say that but a lot of people didn't feel that different right, right. because russian was one of the languages that they spoke and now they definitely feel different right so um yeah and i guess to to i did i i was the one who dropped the the world war framing i mean it's hard to say you know we can't predict anything at this point putin has made threats of, to use nuclear options um he has basically said if any western countries intervene on behalf of ukraine he will use a nuclear response um i do think that if that happens there has to be an escalation from Western allies um, because that's completely unacceptable. Uh, and, and that really, you know, this could be a, a much bigger conflict. I right. clearly dearly hope that that doesn't happen, but um, it's something that we you know, have to take Putin seriously when he makes those kind of threats. Exactly. You know? And then today, for ex- following in that same line of conversation today, uh, Kamala Harris uh, spoke and stated that the United States will unequivocally uh, support all of its NATO ally and defend all of its NATO allies. Mm-hmm. So what is or should be the role of NATO in this conflict? Mm-hmm. And beyond that, what should the United Nations be doing mm-hmm. really um, in its response? Because we've seen that um, many countries and allies of Ukraine mm-hmm. have done things like cut ties. Companies right. are uh, are like saying we're out um, mm-hmm. if the tone of the of what is going on doesn't change um the u.s is no longer taking gas from uh russia (laughs) and you know like banks are cutting ties and so on and this is drastically changing the lives of people within russia who might not have anything to do with this conflict that's right um but yeah yeah it's um it's an interesting you know we have kind of multiple fronts i would say um in this in this war um the the reaction of Western countries has been interesting because it has been very united. These sanctions that you're talking about, um, you know, the United States waited to put aggressive sanctions on till they saw that European countries were also doing it so that everybody could kind of be in line with each other. I think that was a great move because showing this united response to Russian aggression, it's a good idea. Um, Unfortunately, you know, Europe is extremely dependent on Russian oil and gas, and right. so they cannot cut those ties like the U.S. was able to do. Um, it's very difficult to know what NATO should do in response to this, and that's because of this nuclear threat. Um, Ukrainians are asking for a no-fly zone, which would basically NATO 
countries or some other Western allies would limit the, the bombing that's being that's happening right now. Right. Ukraine doesn't have enough of an air force to shoot down all the all the missiles that Russia is right. shooting at them. Um, and the idea is that if someone would intervene to help Ukraine close the skies, then Ukraine on the ground, the ground forces could control the troops that are coming in from the borders and they could also get humanitarian aid in, in, a, in a more effective way. That is not happening. NATO is not agreeing to do that. Poland recently tried to give Ukraine some decommissioned fighter jets, and the United States actually blocked that from happening, right. which was, I thought, a great little workaround. But, you know, it doesn't really matter, right? It, it doesn't matter if it's officially NATO or not. If Vladimir Putin sees it as an escalation, he's going to respond however he wants. Officially, yes, it would have been not NATO supplying these planes so it would have technically not been an escalation by nato mm -hmm. um but i'm i'm sure that putin would have turned it that way right because he can spin his narrative however he wants yeah. um you know so i i mean i think um really part of the reason that i i am kind of making sure we think about this as a potential kind of global conflict is because i do think there's going to be a restructuring of our global institutions, Russia has a seat on the UN Security Council. Right. They probably shouldn't now, right? I mean, they invaded another country and are trying to wipe it off the map. You shouldn't maybe be allowed to do that. Right. Um, and, and so it's really, um, people have some pretty radical suggestions. I mean, if um, kicking Russia out of the Security Council, potentially out of, out of all, you know, global organizations, um, it's it's something to think about you know and the other reason that this is important is because russia the current russian federation that we have now it kind of established itself as the successor to the soviet union right. so all of these institutions where the soviet union was represented when the soviet union ended russia took those seats and took those positions and there wasn't really that much conversation about whether or not that was right um now we're sort of starting to see that maybe we should have thought this through a little bit more mm -hmm. you know um the focus was on trying to restabilize the Russian economy in the 1990s in particular when it was in a very bad situation. And so the focus has always been on kind of rebuilding the Russian economy to participate in the global market. Um, clearly, that that didn't prevent an, right. an autocrat from taking power. And so so basically, some of the things that the United Nations should be focused on in the kicking Russia out of, you know, some of the seats that mm -hmm. they're in um, or limiting their participation in some of these institutions to kind of send a message, um, yeah. but nothing militarily, because that would just escalate it to a new level. It's hard, you know, certainly limiting Russia's ability to veto, right? They have the veto on the Security Council. So anywhere they have that kind of power, I think, you know, it, uh, but that will take a, a long time and right. China probably won't agree, right? Like there's so many geopolitics that go into that. Um, I, I, I have a, a hard time. I mean, on the one hand, I do think that NATO needs to respond because, you know, civilians are being murdered while we speak right now. That is unacceptable. That, that crosses to, to me, like that crosses a line, um, that, that Russia should not be let to cross. But I am fearful of the response too. So I'm not sure. Um, I try very hard to just advocate for what Ukrainians are asking for, which is the no-fly zone, um, rather than some kind of commitment of ground troops or that sort of thing, because you know that that's a different question for sure. Mm -hmm. um, Ukrainians are asking for a no-fly zone, so that's kind of 
what I'm trying to take as, you know, yeah. to them, that's what would, that's what would be acceptable as a, as a response. And I think, um, I don't think that's unreasonable. Cause like I said, if, you know, however Putin wants to decide his response, he's kind of already decided, I think. Right. And in speaking to what, uh, Russians are asking for, could you speak to a little bit to what is actually going on in the ground right now? What the, you know, cause the media is putting all this stuff out, but with mm -hmm. the dissemination of information, like it's hard to keep up. Yeah. So what is actually happening on the ground right now and why should we be concerned? Well, we should be concerned, um, first of all, because it, it, it's very clear that Russia is using indiscriminate force against civilian targets. So the invasion started by the bombing of um, airfields across the country, much, much more aggressively than a lot of us thought would happen. Um, so it included Eastern Ukraine as well as Western Ukraine, which was sort of seen as like going to be a lot safer. So that's how it started. But but then we started to see some civilian targets being hit. So housing complexes, residential neighborhoods, stuff like that. Um, and that has just gotten worse and worse and worse over the past two weeks. So the two main cities um, that we're seeing a lot of news from is Kharkiv, which is in eastern Ukraine. It's less than 30 miles, I think, from the Russian border. That was supposed to be one of those Russian cities that was going to just welcome the Russians with open arms, and that is not what has happened at all. The other major city that we're dealing with right now <clears throat> is Mariupol, which is a port city um, on the on the Azov Sea in the south, and that city is under siege right now. Many of your viewers probably saw the footage of bombing of a maternity hospital that happened today. Um, I they the Russian press was claiming that there was a Nazi battalion at the maternity hospital. Wow. I mean, they're they're just making things up at this point. They actually deleted some of their tweets lying about that because the, there was so much outrage about them trying to claim that they hadn't actually bombed a maternity hospital when they had. So, um, and you know, Mariupol is, is there's no connection there, right? So we, mm. people who know people in, in Mariupol, we haven't heard from them in two weeks, really. Um, and there's no food, there's no medicine. Uh, there was a report of children dying of dehydration. So it's not just this indiscriminate bombing and killing of civilians that way. It's this long drawn out process of putting these cities under siege to break the populations and not let them leave. That's the other thing that's happening, has happened a couple of times is that um, negotiations between Russia and Ukraine they agreed on a humanitarian corridor to get right. civilians out, and then Russia dropped bombs on some of the exactly. lines of people. Um, these are, are there. There are people who are working to document these as war crimes, um, and I think that that is a good move. Um, so, you know, that's something that we should care about, I think, just because we're humans, and these are things that are awful that no human should ever have to live through. Right. Um, but yeah, um, <clears throat> this also just in that same line of uh, thinking and conversation has created one of the worst humanitarian crises that we've seen, at least that Europe has seen in like mm -hmm. centuries. Um, over 1.7 million people are leaving Ukraine to neighboring countries mm -hmm. and that is sending a shockwave through our systems. Yeah, so um, what we saw from really February 24th was a mass movement of people toward Western Ukraine. So some of the cities in the east, um, Kharkiv in particular, a lot of people tried to leave um, pretty quickly. And I, but I think that the thing that's really important for, for viewers to understand is Yes, there's about 2 million people who have crossed the border. Ukraine has at least 40 million people. Right. So that's not a majority at all. 
However, there are millions of people who have moved within the country. And so the, the level of internal displacement is also very dramatic. Right. And we don't know how many people have left right now. Um, and so right now we're seeing, you know, people trying to get out of the capital city of Kiev. Um, the mayor uh, today, I think, said something to the effect of half the, half the residents of the city have fled. Um, so they're all trying to get somewhere safer. And what's actually happening with a lot of people is that they are leaving to go somewhere within Ukraine because they hope that they can go home soon. They hope to see their displacement as, as temporary. Mm. Um, and that's actually also, to some extent, what's happening at the borders as well. You know, people are going to Poland because there were already many Ukrainians in Poland. So people are kind of going where they know and then where they think is kind of temporary so they can get back. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's realistic. That's very common in situations of mass displacement. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it remains to be seen if if people will be able to get back in the in the time frame that they think they can. One thing that has been heartening in this conflict, however, is the rest of Europe's reaction to everything that is going on. Um, so we see people waiting at borders, welcoming Ukrainians mm -hmm. in their homes, like Germans at train stations and airports. Um, welcoming people with food and signs and stuff. Um, so I think that's a very heartwarming thing to see. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to take a second to speak to that. And what else can people outside of Europe mm -hmm. can do yeah. and what we should be doing? It, it has been really heartening. I mean, uh, it's uh, like you said, uh, it's a mass humanitarian crisis and the response has been... Um, really generous. Um, I do think that part of the reason for that is because, you know, a lot of people in Europe have been afraid of Vladimir Putin for some time. Right. And so to them, they want to help because they know that they could be next. It's very close to home for them for, for many reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Not just, um, you know, just because of physical proximity, but because of the, the Russian threat is, is grave. I have right. friends in Finland who were telling me they're kind of getting afraid because they're also right next door. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, as I mentioned before, you know, Ukraine's been at war for eight years already. There were already one and a half million displaced people within Ukraine. So what that means is that the networks to help people move, built. they were already built. People already know how to help each other get around and they already know how to mobilize. So a lot of these skills, I think a lot of the response comes from the fact that people already were, you know, ready to move. Um, in Europe, I, I mean, I, I am kind of surprised. This isn't usually what we see as a response right. to big refugee crises. Um, and I do, you know, part of me does wonder if if people think it's temporary and so they're really willing to help now. But a month from now, when there are more refugees coming in, they're going to get tired of it. Um, and and we'll just sort of see, um, you know, how it develops. I mean, there's also been a lot of mobilizing in the U.S. There's a couple, again, partly because so many people were active in the past eight years, Ukrainian-American organizations in the U.S. have been doing humanitarian work mm. in support of Ukraine for those times. So they are also just mobilizing at a greater scale. Um, so we're seeing them collect money, collect supplies, paying, you know, giving actual money, cash to the Ukrainian military to buy better equipment. Um, and, and also I'm working on or working with groups of scholars who are trying to create uh, scholarship opportunities for scholars and students from Ukraine who want to come to, to safety for some time. Um, so those types of mobilizations are, you know, happening. they're happening and, and it's people who are here um, who are, you know, there's a lot to contribute from here, which is also makes you feel a little bit better 
and and less maybe I don't know paralyzed with like helplessness. Nothing I can do. Yeah, and I think that's all amazing stuff, and that speaks to our ability as a global community mm -hmm. to assist in any capacity where there is like conflict mm -hmm. or war and people are displaced. But in that same line, however, we've been seeing some pretty disheartening stuff mm -hmm. in the media yeah. um, from. Per pervasive racism mm -hmm. to at least I would call it racism mm -hmm. or to you know Islamophobia or xenophobia mm -hmm. so like you said earlier this this tone that we're seeing in Europe towards refugees or immigration is not what we've been seeing up until a couple of weeks ago um, for example like you said over two million people have crossed the border into mm -hmm. Europe that's about how many people how many Syrians mm -hmm. were let into Europe in a span of three years. Um, and so that speaks to something. Yep. And then we have um, footage of African students yep. unable to leave Ukraine because um, they won't let them on the train or the buses. Yep. Um, Indian students being uh, stranded. Um, and from Europe in general, uh, hundreds of thousands of black Africans have mm -hmm. died on the Atlantic yeah. Ocean trying to cross into Europe. And Italy and the rest of Europe's response is, let's let them die. Yep. Or making treaties with Libya, which is a conflict zone, to enslave black Africans in Libya. Um, and so, you know, like, the response, Afghanistan is going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. Then you have issues in in Yemen and all over the, all around you know the global south or the parts that are not considered the West. Um, and you know, could you help explain this phenomenon mm -hmm. of why the difference in treatment mm -hmm. um, for these different groups? Yeah, I think this is a this is a complex topic that I think. Um, is making a lot of us a little reactionary. Right. So I think that absolutely there's a double standard. Ukrainians are largely white. They are Christian. They they have those affiliations that a lot of people, especially in the countries that border Ukraine, they feel a likeness for those reasons. They mm -hmm. feel Ukrainians aren't threatening because they're just like us. And that is not how they treated people from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Africa, you know, at all. So there's definitely... Um, a big double standard that should give us pause. You know, we need right. to think about that. That shouldn't stop us from caring exactly. about Ukrainians. Right. So I think both of those things can exist at the same time. Right. And they, this is an example of how they do exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Look how capable humans are of compassion. Mm. So what's preventing us from being compassionate more of the time? Right. Um, we have to be able to figure out, you know, we can't say stop helping Ukrainians because right. Europe was racist before. That That's not gonna work partly because refugee crises aren't going to stop. Right. So why not take this example as a lesson that we can build from, you know, as an example, like we know we have the capacity, so yeah. now let's let's expand it. How do we exist in that duality of they're not mutually exclusive? Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, sitting from where we are, I think it merits thinking about, you know, we're not embroiled in the conflict right now, so we have the time and space to think about it, so we should. Right. In terms of the issue, you know, of race in Ukraine, I, I think it's really essential that we recognize this is the long history. Um, African students came to the Soviet Union and a lot of them studied in Ukraine because Ukraine had some of the best universities. So there's actually a long tradition of African Ukrainians and kids who grew up in Ukraine who have African heritage, um, African lineages, African parentage. Um, and these kids are Ukrainian and have, and have been fighting for their space in Ukrainian society for a long time um they they talk a lot about racism in ukraine this is not something that you can 
hopefully study Ukraine and pretend doesn't exist because it mm -hmm. absolutely does. Um, so that's part of the story that we're hearing now. There's another part of the story of other international students who came to Ukraine since independence. So there's particularly lots of students from Nigeria and from India who study in Ukraine. Um, and they have been in some of the stories. For example, there's a, the city of Sumy, which is in northern Ukraine, which has a big university which with a huge international student population. And those students were under siege for several days and, and no one could get out. Um, and it, it became a story of racism, but no one could get out. It wasn't because they were black and brown students that they were stuck there. It was because the city right. was being shelled and if they had left, they would have been killed. Like right. that's the stakes we're talking about. Um, so I do get a little frustrated when these narratives are saying that mm -hmm. these are stories about race when they're much more complex. It's much more complex. It's not not about race, but it's the reason that these students were there and were stuck is, is not because they were Indian students, right? Mm -hmm. um, I also want to say that I think it's really important there are so many people who are working from the United States and from elsewhere to help these students get where they need to go and get the supplies they need to go and so um, anybody who wants to dig into these stories also needs to dig into the networks that have been created to help these students right. because again you know they don't have the same um, they don't necessarily have the same knowledge of the Ukraine, the existing networks in Ukraine as other students. So they are at a disadvantage. Mm. And so there were a lot of groups um, from the U.S. And, and, and within Ukraine who are helping those students find a way out, get information from their embassies on the other side. So, for instance, the Nigerian embassy was put, putting all kind of in Poland, was putting all kinds of information out on social media mm. because they wanted to make sure that the kids who were at the border could get access to that information. Mm. Um, and so some now some embassies were much more proactive. The Indian embassy was not very active, not very helpful with getting a lot of students out and that was very you know difficult to see that they were just sort of like okay you can figure it out yeah. and no you can't um so there's i think different responses again um and I, I think it's also just important to remember, you know, it, many of these border situations were very chaotic for most of this time. And I heard uh, I heard a lot of terrible stories of lots of people not being able to get out now. Not, you know, not discounting, not discounting, right? Not going to xenophobia. Yeah. But and it's that's about understanding. It, yeah. The greater picture. Um, and Ukraine certainly has a problem with race and blackness and that's very complicated and worth discussing um i think europe in general well that's the thing i mean we've also heard a lot of stories that this is, is happening in poland too you know roma migrants are being subject to far worse conditions once they get across the border if they're allowed to you know so you know this is a it is a time to ask europe to reckon with its own problems with race um but like I said, it's not a time to use that as an excuse to deny yeah. um, people who are in, in great need. Um, and I think, it, and again, I, I think it's also a chance to recognize how many people are willing to put energy into helping you know, from from all angles. And I am a little frustrated with the way that the U.S. media has picked up on the story. I read an article recently that used this situation in Ukraine as a headline, mm -hmm. but the article was about African students in the Soviet Union. It wasn't about Ukraine at all. Right. So that's what we're talking about with like, what information can you trust? Right. If you're just reading headlines, then you get frustrated easily. Yeah. Um, and it's not like this story shouldn't be covered, but it's being covered in a way um, that quite frankly reflects a, a Russian propaganda tactic to make people turn their attention away from the main issue at hand, which mm. is Russia invaded Ukraine and is killing civilians, including international students, right? Right. Um, 
it's turning our attention away from that and saying, well, look at these other problems in Ukraine. They're very reactionary headlines, right. right? They're designed to make you mad. And so it's turning your attention away from the real villain, which is Vladimir Putin. Um, not again, not to say that we shouldn't be mad about it. It's just it's it's this divisive tactic. It has a role. It, that media, yeah. that use of the media to get people invested in only part of the story mm. is a Russian propaganda technique. Thank you for that. All right. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, the West reaction to Zelensky or people were saying, um, let's arm Ukrainian civilians and let's fight for our right to self-determination. Mm -hmm. This has been praised by the rest of the world, um, but it hasn't been the case in other parts. For example, Palestinians have been fighting for their right mm -hmm. to self-determination for over 70 years now. and. We've heard crickets, um, Taiwan, other places. We might even get in trouble for having this conversation. Um, so I wanted you to speak on that a little bit. Why the double standards? Why the hypocrisy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think um, this is giving us some insight into uh, some of the fundamental inequalities that are built into our world order. I think the thing that makes Ukraine especially um, easy for people to jump onto right now is a combination of things. First of all, you know, it is one of the more successfully democratic post-Soviet republics. So one of the countries that actually was in the Soviet Union that has really moved toward democracy. Um, and the election of President Zelensky was a real indication that Ukraine was trying very hard to get to that democracy. Um, and, you know, the Ukrainian public opinion has turned very much toward being Ukraine, being independent. So I think all of those factors together make it an easy choice to support Ukraine. Um, it doesn't hurt that Zelensky is this very charismatic guy. I mean, everything he's been saying has been fantastic. He's stayed in Ukraine. You know, his whole, he was offered a ride and he said, I need ammunition, not a ride. You know, he's got these sound bites. He knows what he's doing. Um, and it's making it easy. I do, I do think it is a double standard, though, because, for example, Palestine that you mentioned, the the calculation is all about how to placate Israel as as part of the global order when we don't want Palestine to be part of the global order in the same way. And so it's the the balance there. It's where one one half of the conflict is being treated completely differently than than the other half. Right. Um, that obviously, you know, has again, its own complicated history, and it is very complicated, but the stakes that are understood in that conflict are somehow different, mm. right? It's it's set up to make it so that saying I support Palestinian self-determination is harder mm. than saying I support Ukrainian self-determination. Right. Why is that? I don't really know like what the root of that is, but that's that's how the kind of decision is set up that some 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 claims for self-determination are easy to support and others aren't. That doesn't seem very fair, especially given how many colonial powers had their hands in establishing Israel. the borders of the countries, including Israel, but the rest of the Middle East, right? Lots of Africa, all d divided up by these colonial powers um, with very little interest in actual self-determination in those cases. Right. An optimistic way to look at it is that the, the world learned their lesson, but it's probably very, you know, generous to think that it probably has something to do 
going back to you know people who look like most of the people in power in European democracies, right? Ukraine is a white Christian democratic country, and that makes it very easy for a lot of people, I think, to say, "I see myself in that," and you know, so we're going to support that. And clearly, that hasn't been the case throughout history. Right, and then there was also news of uh, recently Israel. Um building settlements uh like 1000 new settlements for ukrainians fleeing uh ukraine or the war and so how do we reconcile with that as a society we are displacing one group to create mm -hmm. space for another um mm. but yeah that's a great question and such an irony because they've also been you know building settlements to claim Palestinian territory. They've been doing that for some time um, to, to, you know, expand their own claims in Palestine, which, I mean, is very illegal in terms of, of actual, you know, international law. Um, I, I would be very upset if they are using this conflict to make greater claims on land that they have been aggressively making claims on. I think that's something we should probably keep our eye on. Um, you know, Israel is in a very strange place because they they do have a lot of Russian speakers and, and have a kind of somewhat closer relationship with Russia than um, a lot of other Western European countries and have been a little tentative in terms of their support for Ukraine, which is, it's all very interesting. Um, and interesting in part because, you know, Russia's whole just so-called justification for this is to denazify Ukraine. Um, and that, of course, is completely absurd uh, language to be using in this scenario. But it, I don't know, it has put you, it has put Israel in a very weird position in terms of whether or not it can support Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And and Israel has also, um, they're one of the countries that prevented some of the military aid from getting to Ukraine in the past few years. So um, there's a couple levels of what's going on here because mm -hmm. we have these these big geopolitical, you know, Israel's thinking about its own well-being. They, they don't want to be the next ones invaded by Russia because there are Russian speakers there right. and, and Russia can say, well, we need to protect Russian speakers in Israel. They've used that justification before. Why wouldn't Israel be next, right? So Israel has to be careful. But, you know, at the same time, again, we're talking about this major humanitarian crisis. So what do we, how do we balance looking right. at this at these two different levels that are um, somehow dramatically different and yet mm. part of the exact same story? And it's very, um, like I said before, I think, I think the, the global order is going to be shaken up by this and right. countries... Um, I hope that this doesn't become a way that other countries justify their, their own, bad practices right. like Israel building settlements in Palestine. I mean, that's that's a bad practice. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. And they certainly shouldn't be allowed to do that in the name of Ukraine. Right. And so um, I want to ask this question and we're going to think about wrapping up the conversation. Um, in a Putin speech that he gave about why he is invading Ukraine, he spoke a lot about NATO having its weaponry right across mm -hmm. its borders and feeling threatened, and also spoke about the U.S.'s ex exceptionalism of like you know invading other countries and doing whatever it wants to do, and then claiming righteousness. Um, so that was Putin's rationale in his speech. Could you speak to that a little bit mm -hmm. and? You know, is there anything we should be careful when listening to that kind of yeah. him talk about those stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I, I, I am one of the of the people with um, I've written about. I don't think this was ever really about NATO. I do think it was about Putin's intention to 
wipe Ukraine off the map because he doesn't think Ukraine is a real place mm. and because it's too threatening. You know, Ukrainian democracy is too threatening to him. Mm. Um, he has talked an awful lot about NATO and and it is, you know, the NATO history is is weird and complicated too i mean there were promises that nato wouldn't expand into some of these post-soviet countries um so you know ukraine and georgia basically putin was asking for these countries never to be allowed into nato i think it's important to remember that ukraine was neutral in 2014 when russia invaded the first time i don't think ukraine not joining nato or promising not to join nato would actually change anything mm. i still think putin would have made the same choices um and NATO exists as this defensive military alliance, but um, with a lot of hesitation about whether or not they really want to be involved in this. So maybe that's another one of these global institutions that might right. need to be rethought a little bit. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not going to deny that the U.S. intervention in lots of places also, you know, I'm in college protested against the, the war in Iraq. I don't think that countries like these great powers should be using that status to intervene in countries that don't want them to intervene. Um, but again, you know, this this particular situation I feel like there's a very clear villain um, and it doesn't really help us out of the situation to do this whataboutism. Right. You know, it doesn't it doesn't clarify anything and it doesn't change anything. Right. Um, and again, not to keep harping on that, but that's another Russian propaganda technique right. is to say, well, what we about can, this person or what about that group yeah. of people or they're doing this and we're doing this. But exactly like, we, well, you can call us. You can say that what we're doing is bad, but you've also done this bad thing. So that makes it's like it's both bad. bad and we should call sure. both out. Exactly. Again, and we can we have to maybe take the time to sit with the fact that both of these things are wrong and then move on from there, which is, you know, again, we have to be cautious about the information that we're consuming and make sure we're getting good information um, so that we can understand and, and really, you know, mm. make decisions based on true things and not on, right. on Kremlin propaganda, which I think we have underestimated how much that has infiltrated um, the U.S. news industry. Uh, right. It's very effective. And then lastly, how can we all support mm -hmm the Ukrainian people that are going through this crisis mm -hmm. right now from like the comfort of where we are? Mm -hmm. Well, honestly, information is one of the ways. So I've been speaking to my friends in Ukraine every day and one of the things that they're telling me is make sure people are reading good information coming from Ukraine. So there's a, a new um, news outlet called Kyiv Independent. Kyiv okay. spelled K-Y-I-V, that's the Ukrainian transliteration. Um, it is a crowdsourced, um, crowdfunded news online, not paywalled news outlet. They're reporting from Ukraine. They have reporters from Ukraine. It's all in English. Um, that's my, my personal favorite in terms of people who are doing a great job covering. Um, so that you know make sure when you're t when you're on twitter when you're on whatever your social media that you college kids like to use these days you know make sure that you're looking at verified information um things don't share things that aren't verified make sure you know you're digging into the background of what something is before you use that as evidence of of um a particular position um you know, people can write to their representatives. That's really easy. We can write to the president, ask him for, you know, the no-fly zone if that's something that you support. Um, that's something that takes just a couple of minutes and that's easy. Lots of donations. Um, you can donate really easily to these large Ukrainian-American organizations. Like I said, you can donate straight to the Ukrainian military if you want to. Um, and, and you can also donate to things like free and open journalism in Ukraine. 
Um, and then the other thing that people from Ukraine are telling me is that rallies and going out and showing images of support is really heartening for them. I mean, remember, they're sleeping in bomb shelters with, you know, their kids and their pets and their most important possessions. And so seeing people um, coming out and supporting, you know, Ukraine and, and just showing that they recognize what's going on. They're telling me that that's really meaningful to them, and I think it's pretty easy for us to do, and it's safe for us to do. Right. So it's it's not too much to ask. Thank you so much for being here. This is a great conversation. We've learned so much, and you know we look forward to continuing this work with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the great questions. Of course. That was our show. I'm your host, Hamidou Sala. Let's Just Talk with Hami is executive produced by Fares, Jibruri, and Lin Khouri. This show was mixed by Peter Benson, with music by The Cam Girls. Research conducted by Tariq Gaston and Hamidou Sala. You can watch a live version of this show on our YouTube channel. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Just Talk, and see you next week.